Hey, it's Jamie West for Scott Thompson. Coming up on the podcast, we're going to talk about the life of Doris Day. What an interesting life this woman led. Passed away this week at the age of uh, 97. Also on the show, we're going to tell you about the city of Hamilton trying to get rid of single-use plastics, those plastic forks and knives and straws and all that stuff that we use for convenience for our lunches and takeout food. There's a city councillor who's got to move to uh, change all of that. And also uh, on the show today, uh, we'll tell you that this won't come as any surprise. Barry Kay is going to be with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, saying you don't want your taxes raised to fight the feds on carbon taxes. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, a singer, uh, an actress who personified uh, wholesome American womanhood in the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, she was in movies with uh, Rock Hudson, Cary Grant, um, and uh, she died in Carmel Valley, California today at the age of uh, 97. Big animal welfare proponent, had uh, the Doris Day Animal Foundation. Um, apparently she she died of pneumonia. She died of old age. You know, that's, that's what happened. Um, despite uh, her perpetually sunny image, her life was marked by periods of physical, emotional, and financial abuse. Her first husband beat her, her second couldn't stomach her success, and her third cheated her out of her hard-won fortune. That's uh, sad. But, the, but uh, by the time of her death, she had long retreated from show business and had gained renowned work for her work in animal welfare. And uh, in 2004, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's uh, highest civilian honor, and uh, the award cited her influence as a performer and as an activist, and uh, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed today, and Paul McCartney had a lot to say on uh, his feed about Doris Day, how much of a fan he was, how he hung out with her several times over the years, and, uh, you know, she had all these wonderful animals and had them uh, living in the lap of luxury, uh, and that he thought she was a tremendous performer a wonderful singer and all of that you can check that out online for yourself scott henderson's with me he's a pop culture expert uh, out at brock university hey scott welcome to the program thanks jamie doris day really was um, uh, iconic and symbolic right of a of a different era in american pop culture oh very much i mean you know her passing it's one of the last connections i think to that classical hollywood era of the 1940s 1950s yeah, she uh, did films such as uh, Teacher's Pet, 1958, Pillow Talk, 1959, which I think a lot of people have seen clips of if they haven't seen the whole film. Uh, that Touch of Mink, 1962. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier she worked with, you know, matinee idols like um, Rock Hudson, Cary Grant, Clark Gable. Um, right in there. That, that, that doesn't get better than that. Yeah, she she came out of singing, and you know she she played a, a character opposite James Cagney in Love Me or Leave Me, way back when, and you know she did very well. I don't think people expected as much from her as a singer to sort of step into this role. It was you know the story of a nightclub singer who herself was kind of violently attacked by her husband, which I think paralleled a bit of Doris Day's own life at that point, mm-hmm. and. She she really came into the role, and of course, you know, que sera sera, right? I, I can't get out of my head today. It's one of those just such a catchy songs. <laughs> it's an earworm. Yeah, but it's from a Hitchcock film. We we, we forget about that. Which film is it from? Too much. 
Oh, from the man who knew too much. Yeah. Didn't see a lot of people didn't know that. I did not know that either. Her real name was Doris Mary Ann von Kappelhoff. Did you know that? Born, yeah. <laughs> born in Cincinnati in 1922. Yeah, got got her name because you know the song that I guess first got attention of her agent was Day by Day, ah. and they said, well, Kappelhoff is way too long to get up there on a marquee, and no one's gonna remember this. But you know that nice alliterative. Doris Day, just the D and the D, and it stuck. Do you think it was her 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 singing talent that cemented her place in in pop culture at that point, uh, more so perhaps than the acting, or do you think it was um, her, her personality, just just Doris Day herself, and the way uh, she related to people, you know, off the screen? I think that the personality and the persona had a lot to do with it, right? She. You know, as a singer, had great delivery. I mean, to me, it's 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 not so much the voice in Kate Sarah, Sarah and her other hits. It's the way she delivers those songs, and you just believe in her, and it, it ties to her character. And of course, it was a persona. When we hear about you know the really rough time she had off screen, I mean, through four marriages, a great deal of difficulty, you know, throughout her life. I mean, she's a dancer who broke her leg just before her big dancing break. Right, but she had that sunny persona, and when she stepped on a stage, when she was in an interview, the Doris Day persona came out, and it was just so warm and inviting. Yeah, um, what do you think? Uh, what What do you think was the end for her, as far as her, um, you know, involvement in in movies and that kind of thing? Did she just? Is it just that pop culture had moved on at that point? We were into a new era. The '60s had come along. The Beatles, the Stones, the Beach Boys. And so that was it was saying goodbye to that 1950s style. Oh, I think that was the biggest thing for her. I mean, she could have been in the Sound of Music. She she turned that down. She was apparently offered the uh, Mrs. Robinson role in The Graduate, but she didn't want to go against character. And really, you know, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and also brought about a big change in Hollywood. Once you know Hitchcock Psycho, ironically, we're back to Hitchcock, and you know some films like that started coming out. Hollywood got a little bit darker, a little more serious, and that girl next door image just didn't match, you know, the American culture of the 1960s. But it was an image that she stuck to. She didn't want to kind of change or undermine her existing persona. It's funny, uh, in terms of trivial facts, it turns out that her son Terry uh, sang on the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds. We were just talking about the Beach Boys and the Beatles, and I'm I'm scanning ahead here to some facts, and apparently he sang. Uh, on the album Pet Sounds. He died in 2004. Um, I don't know. Did she have other kids? Do we know if she's left anybody behind, or was she the last one standing in her family? I think she was the last one. I think that was her, you know, Terry was her son, and they were, they were very, I think, close as uh, his mother and son, and, you know, his passing, it was a huge blow to sure. her as well. And he did have a relatively successful career in music as well. Right, and uh, it's interesting that... Um, you know, she she was kind of uh, screwed around by uh, her third husband, producer uh, Martin Melcher, um, who uh, it, it turns out died unexpectedly at the age of 52. She discovered that Melcher and her lawyer, Jerome Rosenthal, had squandered her entire fortune and left her $500,000 in debt. She won a uh, $26 million civil suit against Rosenthal, uh, but the two sides negotiated for 17 years to reach a $6 million settlement. Can you imagine how much the lawyers got? 
Yeah, that, that would have been the biggest cut of that. Well, and Rosenthal and, himself was disbarred as a lawyer. Yeah, so again, her off-screen life. And, wow. You know, she had the Doris Day show. She moved kind of into television. and She was a bit of a staple on the kind of 70s talk show circuit, but she had her own show for five years, and, and that was a show that, you know, was arranged behind her back by yeah. her husband and the lawyer. But She hated she it, apparently. Out. Yeah, she went out and did it and had that sunny personality and that throwback element. And, you know, it it was part of a shift. I mean, those classic Hollywood stars, you know, really dominated 70s TV. You'd see a lot of them, whether it was game show, panel shows, variety shows. You know, they kind of had their comeback there, and she was among those. Who would we see by today's standards who could even match that? I, I just feel like that whole that whole thing is gone. Like, you know, Doris Day... Lucille Ball. There's probably some others uh, of of that of that time that are, you know, even Marilyn Monroe. I don't know. Yeah, we don't seem to Jane have Russell. Kind of, yeah, the, those kind of stars of, of that ilk, and you know, the original Hollywood where you had these multi-talented, you know, dancer, singer, actor, and they kind of show up in all sorts of different areas. I mean, now you know, people seem to settle into largely one area, get aligned with a role. We don't quite have the same star system that we once did i mean there's they're still stars and there's big actors you no know, no question about that but maybe nobody who's quite the same as the doris day ilk yeah it's interesting uh, uh as i said at the beginning of our conversation uh paul mccartney had a lot to say about doris day today on his feet i was i was surprised because you know i follow uh, all things beetle and and there was mccartney and he was waxing on quite poetically about his friendship with doris day and the times they spent together and her ability as a performer and as an artist he was quite respective of that yeah and i mean they share the animal rights interest right paul mccartney is a longtime kind of animal rights activist and doris day from very early on and I think, again, McCartney's probably someone who recognizes that. You know, he started with that kind of original Beatles image and then through the changes in the 60s and then to kind of becoming a a, a grand old man of the pop music industry, he knows where Day is. He knows how much of a persona and how much work was involved in the way she presented herself. Right. Scott Henderson, uh, pop culture expert at Brock University. Always a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. City Council says it's uh, maybe time for a zero plastic waste plan. Uh, The idea is to uh, create a plan that would discourage residents and businesses from using single-use plastic, including uh, not accepting the material at local landfills. Boy, that's a tall order. And uh, the uh, woman behind it is uh, Narinder Nan. She's the councillor for Ward 3 in the city of Hamilton. Narinder, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Um, this, is a, this is a tall order. Um, you're gutsy for pushing this forward. How, how, well, first of all, let's define what single-use plastic is for, for people. Sure. Those are things like those plastic forks and spoons and knives that we get when we order takeout food. Uh, it's the styrofoam container that our meal often comes in, those black dishes with the, the clear plastic lid. Um, and it also includes coffee cups and the, the plastic lid that goes on top of that. The list is kind of endless when you think about uh, food, food-based plastic. Right. So what did we do before that? Well, before that, we actually had uh, some items that could be accepted into our recycling program that made sure that those items didn't end up in landfills or worse yet, in our environment. Um, And 
Some of those items have never been accepted in our recycling program and end up in the landfill and, at worst, in our waterways and in our green spaces across the city. I've noticed in some places they're starting to get rid of plastic straws. I think people have noticed that. I I don't know whether that's paying lip service to this whole idea, but I have noticed uh, uh, some restaurants are getting rid of plastic straws. Um, You know, people have seen the videos online of the plastic islands floating around in the ocean and and that kind of thing. And that obviously plays to your point here with local waterways as well. But from from a real practical sense, how do you untrain people Uh, to use these things? Is it just a matter of taking them away and then they'll find an alternative? Or do you have to appeal to people to to bring, you know, for example, carry a a knife and a fork in a bag uh, every day to work in a lunch bag that's reusable? There's actually a lot of different things that we can be doing. And I think that fundamentally at the end of this day, this motion is about saying, what can we be encouraging residents? What can we be doing to facilitate businesses succeeding in, in creating less plastic waste? And then what what are the responsibilities as a city in terms of our own facilities and the events that we sponsor? So it's multi-pronged. I think, number one, we've got great local businesses across the city who have already shown independent leadership on this issue by, like you mentioned, replacing out plastic straws. Some of them have moved 100% towards compostable uh, containers for your takeout food. And I think more than anything, it's about how can the city help facilitate businesses succeeding towards that. So if that's a matter of the city doing our research and helping um, businesses be able to identify what are those reusable Uh, items. What are the compostable alternatives? What's interesting to note is uh, talking to some of the business owners in Ward 3 who've made that switch is them learning that it's cheaper for them to actually have the inventory for a compostable container versus those black plastic ones, for example. So we know that this works for businesses from a bottom line perspective, and most of those business owners and other associations of uh, restaurants and food services have come out on side saying, you know, we need to prioritize the environmental impact and do do what it takes from a short-term financial uh, adjustment period as well. Would part of this plan for the city going forward be to penalize businesses that continue to use single-use plastics? At this point, what I'm asking staff to do is report back with a thorough plan that's based in facts and uh, strategies that enable success. And so that means looking at how can the city make sure that we're not vendors of plastic, single-use plastic, that anybody who's selling goods in our facilities are doing so in an environmentally sustainable way, which keeps consumers happy, gives them the choice to continue consuming what they want, which is the product inside the plastic versus actually consuming the plastic. And then um, enabling our event organizers and festivals to also include that in our super crawl or other festivals that are coming up in the city to see how we can enable those events to also help us move towards zero plastic. At the end of the day, our residents in Hamilton care more about what they're buying versus the product or plastic or packaging that it comes in. And they care about it most when they have to do cleanups every spring. I don't know about you, but when oh, yeah. the comes, you can see the plastic all over the place. Uh, I've been picking up plastic utensils, I feel like, every other day from green, places, uh, green spaces and in our parks and around our schools. And so that's, that's the key here is how do we make sure that we're enabling our consumer base, our residents to continue living in the life that they want to live, but do so in a way that's sustainable and giving them the option to do that. Okay, well, it's a you know it's a noble cause. Maybe the next one you could do is get people to pick up their dog dirt in green spaces too, and uh, hammer on that. I know that's a different topic altogether, but you know when you talk about littering, people people are pigs 
in, in our city. They 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 just leave their their literally their crap everywhere, and it's uh, it's not good. Have you compared notes with any other municipalities on this particular issue and gotten any uh, ideas uh, from them? And is there sort of a, is there any kind of national movement afoot? I'm thinking here with the minute or so we have left about you know the packaging that we see every single day. Um, of of consumer goods and the over plasticization of that packaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a movement and, for sure, and it's being led by um, it, you know definitely on the federal government end. The provincial government is actually looking at how producers of plastic can be held responsible for making sure that we have less plastic going into our landfills and our environment. And then municipalities like Vancouver, Victoria. Halifax and even Montreal have all successfully introduced measures that help reduce and or even eliminate, in some of those cities' cases, uh, styrofoam, as well as single-use plastics from uh, from their landfills and their environment. And then other cities like Edmonton or Toronto are kind of sitting back and watching what other municipalities are doing in their effort to also want to reduce the plastics. All right. Are your council colleagues behind you? I know you guys had a meeting or something this morning, right? Yeah, we had a unanimous vote in favor of it today at Public Works Committee, and so the next uh, the next step for this motion is to go to council, and I don't anticipate uh, the results being any different. All right, Narinder Nan, Councillor Ward 3, uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, look forward to talking to you again down the road. All the best. Take care, Jamie. Thanks, bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The provincial government's spending taxpayer money uh, towards battling the federal carbon tax. And uh, joining us on the line is is Barry Kay. He's a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, welcome back to the program. Hello, Jamie. So uh, does this come as any surprise to you that uh, two-thirds of Canadians would oppose uh, the provincial government spending their tax dollars to battle the feds on the carbon tax? I think most uh, Canadians, most Ontarians probably aren't in favor of any of spending money on anything that doesn't particularly, isn't relevant and beneficial to them. Uh, that said, it's not a huge amount of money given the provincial budget. I, I don't think this is the kind of thing that's going to become an election issue. Ironically, of course, <clears throat> the next Ontario election is more than three years away, but there's a federal election in five months. And indeed, it's almost like uh, the uh, Premier Ford is sort of doing this on behalf of he's taking a, a bit of a hit, if, if it's that, uh, just to help out Andrew Shear and his federal buddies. Yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, again, the, the problem with, uh, with the environment in general, although most people probably don't like the idea of spending money, but the gov- you know, provincial governments spend money, this isn't the first one, on all sorts of advertising for things that are in the, they feel are in their electoral self-interest. I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on much of anything anyway. But uh, the, the problem with the environment is uh, people in pay lip service to it, but that indeed it's not immediate for a lot of people. It's, it's a collective good. Uh, whatever we do in you know, the amount of... Um, carbons that are being produced in Canada in terms of contributing to global warming is and climate change is, is something in the order of maybe 2% uh, collectively. And even if we all stop driving cars, I'm not suggesting we're about to do that, but even if we were doing something radical like that, the likelihood of the impact that Canadians would have on the overall situation is, is still fairly minimal. And as a result, people tend not to, to think of it as something they can affect directly. Um, even though uh, I think a lot of Canadians would would increasingly acknowledge that the climate is changing and for the worse, and that something should be done, but having to make personal sacrifice. Now, ironically, the um, the federal the federal tax um, is something that um, uh, is is supposed to be revenue neutral anyway, uh, and people with the most of that money, perhaps all of that money, will be returned in other ways, up to whatever is being collected at the gas tank. But I guess there's a few political points to be scored by the province. 
Uh, I, if I was looking up a list of concerns I had with the provincial government, uh, that wouldn't rank at the very top. There's just a whole lot of other things they're doing and spending money. Spending money in some ways unnecessarily. Uh, the uh, the fact they're going to be uh, coming in, we're changing the topic slightly, but they're going to come in for a hit with regard to the um, making uh, beer beer available in local stores. Uh, they've got a contract with a beer store. And that's going to cost them money, and that's that's going to be much bigger bucks than anything that's involved with regard to this advertising. <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's hilarious for me to hear us talking about, you know, uh, beer being an issue. It, it, it's 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 ridiculous how what what's an issue and what isn't. And you know, I just get the sense, uh, Barry, that the the political appetite for all things environment is really fading away. We, you know, we're hearing that. You know, we're not hitting it on the Paris Accord. Uh, the world is not on track to meet its objectives. And Keith Brooks, who's uh, uh, somebody that's going to join us on the show, um, and uh, frankly, the UN Secretary General has said, you know, there's the appetite is being lost for all things environment. People just are not buying it, and they just want to do business, and they don't care. Well, I'm, what goes I'm not in sure the air? It's being lost. I don't know that it was ever all that high okay. to begin with. Fair um, enough. And, uh, things aren't changing. And the fact is, things are getting worse. Mm. But our ability to control it in Canada and in Ontario is still fairly minimal, unless there, there's sort of limited issues that are environmental yeah. that we perhaps can be done here. But the, the, the basic global problems, and they really are there, I, it's something I take very, I think, in the long run, it's the biggest, the biggest problem that faces us. But they aren't immediate, and that people tend not to be prepared to to make sacrifices for things that aren't going to benefit them. As to the uh, the poll you were referring to, uh, people don't like spending money on it if they're asked about spending money on advertising for the <laughs> government on anything. They're always going to say no, aren't they? Yeah, they always will. Barry Kay, uh, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Always a pleasure to have you on board. Thanks so much for this. You bet. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I tried to light a fire in the last segment by suggesting to you that um, climate change is something that I believe is real. I, I believe that it's happening. But what I don't believe about climate change is that human beings are solely to blame for it and that we ha- really have that big of an effect on climate change and that we can really do anything about it as a group of specks of sand on this gigantic planet. I actually believe that the Earth has been spinning for a lot longer than we have been spinning this story, and I believe that the Earth will continue to do that long after we're gone and long after these radio broadcast licenses have run out. That's my personal belief. My next guest will probably disagree with me. He is uh, Keith Brooks, Program Director with Environmental Defense. Uh, Keith, good to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so uh, we invited you on the program because the U.N. Secretary General is saying that when it comes to the Paris Accord, uh, which is a political thing, that the world is not on track to meet its objectives and that the political will to fight climate change is fading. Does that surprise you at all? It doesn't really surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that we're not on track to meet the Paris Climate Agreement objectives. Uh, even the pledges that were made in Paris when that agreement was signed did not take us to the, the, the aspirational goal of limiting climate change to 1.5 degree of warming. Um, but that said, the Paris Agreement doesn't actually come into force until 2020. It is about the period between 2020 and 2030, so we're not in that period yet. And we've known for a long time that pledges need to be strengthened um, I do see part of what he's saying around political will uh, headed in the wrong direction. I think we could look to our friends south of the border, in particular 
to see that, although we're seeing some of it in, in Canada too. Um, but I think that, that there is a lot of political will, a lot of appetite growing from the, from the grassroots, from the ground up, from the individual voters uh, who are demanding action like this. And if you look at any of the recent polling, you see that uh, a huge majority of Canadians want their governments to do more on climate change. Eventually, that's got to translate into political will, because that's, that's where it comes from. It comes from the people. Right. And do you believe that there's enough people who think that way? Who think which way? Who think that uh, climate change, A, is a, it should be uh, a priority, and B, that we can do anything about it as a group of human beings, whatever the size of the group is? Yeah, we've looked at lots of, of polling. A lot of people are, are probing this question, and uh, we find that in, in Canada, a uh, very strong majority, like 75%, uh, believe that climate change is, is happening that it's caused by people and that we can do something. And people feel like they want their governments to do more. Um, people are feeling like this is a problem that we, we must engage with and that we can, in fact, uh, solve. Where's the scientific evidence that climate change is caused by people? Well, it's, it's overwhelming, the scientific evidence, actually. I mean, we have um, thousands and thousands of, of peer-reviewed scientific papers that have studied this. Um, it's a very, very strong scientific consensus. There's, there's virtually, you know, well, very few people that, that, that dispute that fact today. And I'll, I'll say, and I, I heard your, your lead up there too, so I'll, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to try to persuade you. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the scientific evidence is, is overwhelming. I mean, we understand how our atmosphere works and how it traps heat. And, you know, a good analogy is that uh, we look at the moon, which we know is the same distance from the sun as the Earth is. Right. The moon has no atmosphere. It's freezing cold, right? It, has, it doesn't trap any heat there in the atmosphere. So that's, that's what really, and we can look at the scientific record going back, but also we're experiencing warming now, right? And we can see the trend, the correlation, the relationship between rising CO2 and rising temperatures and rising extreme uh, incidents of weather. All of the things that were predicted to happen as a result of climate change are happening now, and it's coming faster than, than we thought. And uh, just one more interesting thing is, you know, we are interveners in the court case here in Ontario. We have the provincial government is taking the federal government to court over the carbon pricing right. uh, piece. So we were there. I was in the court, and Ontario's lawyers and said, we're not here to argue whether climate change is real. We're not here to argue whether or not greenhouse gases are the cause, and we're not here to argue about whether government needs to do something. So they take all that uh, uh, as, as true that climate change is happening, it's caused by people, it's caused by greenhouse gases, and something must be done. Their only argument is about whether or not carbon pricing is the tool that should be used and whether the government, the federal government, has the constitutional well, power to do it. Well, just because they're not there to argue it doesn't, you can't translate that, that into an, an acceptance. It, it, in, in a courtroom, there's one issue at hand, one question at hand, and that happens to be the one you just raised there at the end. It's, you can't extrapolate their agreement on, on the other stuff just because they're not there to argue it. No, well, they were entering it in as evidence to say that we're not debating. In fact, they have their own climate plan, right? So this government that we have that doesn't like the, the approach to climate change and they're having a political fight about climate change, they accept climate change as a fact. And it's written in their own literature. They have their own plan. It's, it's a, a woefully inadequate plan, but they have a plan because they know that they have to do something about, about climate change. And even the premier himself you know, was in Ottawa and making a direct link between the floods that we're seeing this year and climate change. So very few people are, are disputing 
whether it's happening, whether it's caused by people, and whether we must do something. I think it's the cause that I, I have a difficulty with. But but where do we begin, Keith? If, if, if I subscribe to the idea that I, as a human being, can do something uh, about this or that, you know, within a group I can can do something to affect a, a change to climate change that could be seen as something positive, I suppose, given on given wherever I happen to exist. Um, where do I begin? Be, because the messages that are being thrown at me every day are are many, and and they're often confusing. You know, re- recycle plastic, but don't put the black plastic in, and 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 you know, don't idle your car, um, and and you know, uh, buy LED bulbs and. You know, like where do we where, where do we begin to make a difference if we decide we're going to make a difference? Is there a spot? Well, there's many points of engagement uh, on climate change. I mean, the uh, the reality is is that you know uh, a lot of the energy that we use in our society comes from fossil fuels, and it's the combustion of fossil fuels that is the predominant or predominant rather cause of of, of of greenhouse gas emissions, which is the cause of climate change. So there's, there's a lot we can do. I mean, when it comes to the individual and in our, our lives, uh, one, we want to decarbonize the energy that we use, and two, we want to use energy more efficiently. So some of the things that you suggested are, are good measures there. Um, so when it comes to decarbonizing energy, what does that mean for, for you or I or any of your listeners? It's, it means, you know, your car. Transportation is, is the, uh, the second largest source of emissions in Canada. And we need to be moving towards, you know, hybrid cars and electric cars and towards public transit that's powered by electricity as well. Uh, We need to be getting off fossil fuels, stopping burning gasoline. That's one thing we need to do. So we're going to work on getting our cars more efficient. We're going to work on getting hybrid cars, and we're going to work on getting electric cars. And a lot of countries over the world have banned the sale of internal combustion engines of your normal gas guzzler kind of car, uh, you know, in 2025 and 2030 and 2040 and the years ahead because we're going towards electric. That's where we're going. And all the major automotive manufacturers are starting to build electric cars, too. We're going to see a lot more of those on the streets in the years to come. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do in the source of individual fossil fuel emissions is heating your home. Uh, natural gas is cleaner than, than coal, but it, it is still a fossil fuel, and it's a, a major source of emissions in, uh, in Canada and in Ontario as well. So you can make your home a lot more energy efficient. You can add insulation. You can add, you know, new windows. You can you can make your home. I mean, they want to build new homes to be net zero, which means that they they produce as much energy as they consume. Uh, and this is totally possible now with, and and it doesn't it doesn't cost much more money, especially when you factor in the savings you get from from less well, energy. So that's a big okay. change. And then I'm going to say the third thing <laughs> you can do. All right. It's really important. Is is actually a lot of it is driven by policy that government needs to put into place. Prior carbon pricing is one of those policies, but they have a bunch of other policies too. And so we actually need to vote for governments that are going to take climate change seriously and are going to enact policy that are going to reduce our emissions. I think you you touched on something earlier. You know, if you if you can save money by doing something, you 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 motivate people. People are motivated by by saving money. They are. They're motivated by yep. the, by the cost or the expense of things. Uh, one way or another, and that's you know that's a a part of the problem. And I suppose when it if we take uh, electric cars uh, for example, they're still expensive. They're very expensive. Most people can't afford them. They haven't got to the point where um, y- you know most people can afford a- electric cars yet. And I yep. guess what you're saying is um, it's going to take political pressure. Uh, to force car companies to create electric cars that are affordable for the market. Is that what you're saying? 
Well, I'm saying it takes time to yeah. get there. As a new innovation, they began as expensive, and then the costs come down over time. But And totally, they are still expensive, most electric cars, although a recent study did show that, uh, I forget which car it was, but uh, a, a new electric car is less expensive than like a new Toyota Corolla, which is one of the highest-selling cars, if you factor in the amount, the cost of fuel because and the cost of maintenance. Electric cars are basically free to charge. It costs a couple bucks to fill up that battery mm-hmm. versus, you know, what is it, 60 bucks now to fill your tank? Uh, and, it, and it costs uh, a lot less in maintenance because you've got a lot fewer moving parts. Uh, and so electric cars are just... So over the total cost of, of, say, of eight years of owning that car, electric is coming out better already. But I know it's still... It's a big price tag right now to put out there. I don't actually have one yet, but my, that's my goal is I'm saving. I want my next car to be electric. And we're getting a little bit of help now. The federal government... Uh, just is is creating rebates. They've just initiated these uh, a couple weeks ago. You can get five thousand dollars back if you buy an electric car. And you know we had in Ontario before, but uh, with the previous government, we had very generous rebates. Uh, Fourteen thousand dollars you could get back. But that's about trying to make these cars more accessible, trying to make them more affordable, and trying to help people get there. But the market's doing it too, right? Innovation's doing it too. The costs are coming down. Yeah. What about uh, the 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 one of the more trendy issues has been where the environment is concerned is is methane coming from uh, livestock because yeah. we're because of our quote overconsumption of of meat. Um, wh- what do you have to say about that? Are you in, are, do you agree with uh, that position that we should uh, get to more plant based uh, diets and g- get off this huge huge meat production thing? Well, the studies do show that, that uh, beef in particular is a large source of greenhouse gas emissions, and that's part because of the, the cows themselves and their digestive systems and the methane that comes from the, from the cows and their manure. Uh, it's also because, in a global sense, uh, certain you know, livestock practices are causing you know, the Amazon rainforest to be cut down. So you're having you know, impacts in far, far away other parts of the world you know, to make space for beef, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the scientists say is that, you know, one of the things you can do as an individual is, is, is eat less meat and specifically less beef. And I don't think you could, and the New York Times actually did a really good expose on this. And they said, if you, if you do become a vegan and you get rid of, you know, uh, all meat and dairy and all that, you'll reduce the impacts, uh, climate impacts from your diet by about 50%. But if you just reduce the amount of beef that you eat, you can actually reduce those impacts by 20%. So even just Changing your diet up a little bit can make a big difference. So where do we go off the rails? Did we with with the with this food thing we're talking about here? Is it is it that we just got we've just become perfect consumers of all things food? And I mean, I you know I've got my own thoughts about the conspiracy of big food manufacturers and and and, and all of that. Did, did we just consume 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 consume? And as a result of that, we've got these climate problems. Whether it's whether it's consuming gasoline, whether it's consuming uh, beef, uh, whether it's uh, uh, consuming uh, shoes that have plastic ingredients in them, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is it is it because we live in a globally consumer-driven world and society that we quote created these problems for ourselves? Do you do you look at it from that high a level as an environmental uh, uh, proponent? I mean, that's part of it for sure, and for a long time. 
uh, rising, you know, GDP and rising standards of living and rising levels of income have all been correlated with rising levels of, of pollution and of greenhouse gases and contributing to climate change. And there's no doubt that, you know, fossil fuels are an incredible discovery and, 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 you know, the steam engine moving up to the internal combustion engine and all of the, uh, all of the things that they have fueled, right? Industrial revolution, uh, you know, changed our world forever, uh, but you can't have too much of a good thing. And that's what we're experiencing right now is that we're, you know, we've, got, we've been burning too much fossil fuels since the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And the carbon dioxide and other gases like methane are accumulating in our atmosphere. It's already caused one degree of warming. It's already ca- it's causing floods across Ontario. It's causing floods across Canada, actually. It caused, you know, massive forest fires here in Ontario and in B.C. and in California, fires in Europe last year. I mean, the impacts are hitting home. So, you know, it's not like fossil fuels are, are, are a bad thing. It's, it's, it's too much of a good thing. And the impacts of that, the pollution over time has built up in the atmosphere. And what countries are trying to do, and we're seeing some evidence we can do this, is what they call decoupling. So we don't want to stop economic growth necessarily. We don't want to see the declining standards of living. What we want to see is an ability to have a prosperous society that doesn't depend on fossil fuels. And that's what's so exciting about renewable energy, about solar power and wind power and about electric cars and about LED light bulbs. All of these, these things that are coming as a result of our desire to decarbonize electricity are really exciting. They're economically viable now. Um, they're, they're a little bit more costly, but the costs are coming down. And we're going through this energy revolution. And it's, it's actually quite exciting the question is, are we going to go through it fast enough to avert the worst impacts of climate change? And, and that was my next question to you is, uh, are you, do you subscribe to the idea, as, as many environmentalists do, that, you know, the disaster is right on the precipice here, that we are, you know, the, the doom and gloom, Armageddon is coming faster well, I- than we think. I mean, there was a report just out, you know, was it last week that said that 50% of the world's species are at risk of extinction, uh, and part one of the reasons is climate change, right? We had a report from the IPCC, or you know, the best scientists in, in the world who study climate change, saying we got 12 years to act. And we have, you know, uh, the UK, Ireland have declared states of, of climate emergency. We've got, well, but Hamilton, how, but how can Burlington, they set? How can London. They, how do they set schedules like that and timelines like that? I mean. We've heard this over and over and over again. We heard, for example, and I'll just pick a couple of more recent examples in history, the BP oil spill in the Gulf, you know, dumped how many millions of barrels of oil into the Gulf? And I think we all sat there looking at the pictures of that thing spewing barrels of crude into the Gulf. And I think we were all feeling sick to our stomachs. And, you know, a lot of that washed up initially on the on the shores of, of Louisiana and in Florida and so on and so forth. But, you know, where did the rest of it go? It, it, it went into the Gulf, but you don't hear anybody talking about it anymore because it went away. It, well, it didn't go away. It caused lasting impacts. You can you can Google it if you want. I, don't, I couldn't I couldn't enumerate those impacts for you right now, but there were there were quite devastating impacts and long lasting impacts on the marine ecosystem there. And initially, also, yes. No, still long lasting impacts that that are that are that are there. Um, and you know, yeah. So, so how do they? You ask the question. How do they? Know? Okay, let's talk about the Jap- the Japanese nuclear meltdown. That was going to be the a huge disaster. The radiation was going to wash up on the shores of BC. Didn't happen. And then everybody stopped talking about it. Well, they haven't all stopped talking about it, right? Japan is still looking about what they're going to do with their nuclear policy. Well, they don't want Germany, it to happen again. But Germany the disaster decided- itself, 
Everybody stopped talking about it. Germany decided to phase out nuclear power altogether as a result of that, and a lot of other countries are taking pretty serious steps to avoid that happening again. And again, there is a, an area that you can't go into because it's radioactive, just like Chernobyl. That area is, but the initial the initial idea was that that radiation would spread and spread and spread, and that it would reach North America. You remember the reports. And it didn't get to that level. It didn't get to an Armageddon level. I'm not saying it was a great thing I'm <laughs> at all, but I'm saying that the fears that were implanted in the minds of human beings didn't come to pass. And the same thing with the Gulf. They, most of the scientists, and we talked to several of them in Florida, have said a lot of there's bacteria that feeds on that crude, that, that ate a lot of it in the Gulf. We didn't realize that it was able to do that, but it did. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here with you. I love listening to your point of view, and I think you raise a lot of really good points for people, people to consider, and I agree with you that too much of a good thing may be causing a lot of uncomfortable uh, uh, potential for us as human beings, at least in the short term. Whether or not the Earth is able to cure itself is a debate that will continue for for a while. But Keith Brooks, I, I do appreciate you spending some time with us here this afternoon, and I hope you'll come back sometime. Yeah, my, my pleasure uh, to, to, uh, to be on the show. And I, I, really, I really don't think there's much debate about whether climate change is happening. I, I think that we pretty much answered that one. And the, the world, by and large, is debating now, what are we going to do about it? All right. Keith, thanks for this. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Keith Brooks, uh, Program Director of Environmental Defense. And yeah, I agree with them. I'm not, deb- I, I don't disagree that climate change is, is happening. I question whether or not it's all because of human behavior. And I question, secondly, whether we can really do anything about it. The Earth's a pretty powerful self-cleaning mechanism. And I think it's pretty arrogant of us to think that we could stop the earth from spinning on its axis and that we can we control it. I think it controls us. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.